Well, good morning. Like Tom said, we're going to be finishing up Titus today, but I want to start by asking, have you ever seen a movie where a character is like giving really important instructions to another character and then they get interrupted? I don't know why I love those scenes. There's a short but funny scene in the film Ocean's Eleven where Brad Pitt's character, he's given like these last instructions to Matt Damon's before their heist. Damon's character, he's the new guy on the team. He's not really worked with them before. And he's given one of the most important jobs in the whole movie. And uh, Pitt's working with him to ensure that he's not going to mess up when they need him the most. And so there are a few things that he's telling him, you know, important things like where to look or where not to look when he's talking, uh, to be funny but not to be memorable, and things like that. And then he says, but whatever you do, don't, under any circumstances. And then he gets interrupted, and it never comes back. You never get to know what he has to say that is the most important thing. And Matt Damon, his character, he just looks dumbfounded. He's just like, wait, that really sounded like it was the most important thing, and yet you're not going to tell me what it was. And anytime a movie has a scene like that, it makes me laugh. I don't know why. Like, I find that funny. <laughs> um, even, like, I watched Ocean's Eleven this week, which is why I thought about this. And uh, I still cracked up, even though I've seen that movie so many times, like, I know it's coming. <laughs> but it makes, I'm laughing before it gets going. I don't know. Um, anyway, giving instructions, it's really important. And that's really what the Apostle Paul has been doing throughout this letter to his coworker Titus. And we're in the last part of the letter, and this is the last sermon in the series. And I think I've said this before when we've done letters and and closed series on them. When you get to the end of the letter, that can really be some of the most important things that uh, you're going to hear. And the same is true here. And so in this final part of the letter, Paul, who doesn't get interrupted in this, but he's appealing to Titus, and there are a few things that he's talking about. He, He wants Titus to avoid four things then he's going to instruct him on how to deal with certain types of people. And then he's going to make one final plea for the Christians at Crete. And we're going to see what we can learn from this. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to open them to Titus chapter 3. And we're going to be in verse 9 and following. And so we're just going to dive in just with verse 9 to start. Where Paul writes, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Now, since the popularity of the internet has exploded, there's been a phenomenon known as misinformation, especially with regard to the news, or the more popular way that we say it is fake news, right? And it's something that seems to have especially hit in the political scene on both sides of the aisle. But what happens is that there would be entities that would use social media to post false stories that would cast one side or the other as doing bad things, And then it would get fed to people's timelines. And whether or not people believed them was kind of on them, but a lot of people did, and and it wasn't always great. That's kind of what the people are doing who were coming in after Paul. Uh, When Paul would go to these places and he would teach and start churches, these people would come in a little bit later with a false gospel And they're saying that you need to do things on top of the grace of God in order to be saved. And Paul has been in this letter instructing Titus to confront these people and to rebuke them in order to protect the flock of his church. At the end of the letter here, he gives four warnings of things that Titus needs to avoid doing as he confronts these people. The first is to avoid foolish controversies. Now this would be to avoid getting into disputes with people. 
Now, we can look at the Gospel of John and see an example of this in action. I mean, the 12 disciples, they're traveling around with Jesus. They're starting to baptize people throughout the Judean countryside. But John the Baptist, he's not yet been imprisoned, so he's also baptizing. And so his followers were kind of like, wait, what's going on here? And in John 3, verse 25, it says that an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. And this is what leads John to correct his followers and say that, you know, he was sent ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way for the Messiah, and that the Messiah must become greater as John becomes less. But you can see how this could be made into a controversial dispute that could happen with the followers of John. I mean, if John wasn't as strong as he was in his walk, didn't know his purpose, then it could have gotten really bad, but it didn't. So why don't we want to get into these kinds of controversial disputes? Well, in 2 Timothy 2.23, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Now, we're going to talk about quarrels and arguments in just a minute, but Honestly, though, that's why we don't want to get into these kind of disputes, these controversies with people. Because many times it moves to quarreling. It doesn't accomplish anything. Paul says that these things are foolish and stupid, and they can be divisive. I read a story about a pastor who was talking to a student from this small town that had two churches in it, but each church had about 30 people in the church. And so pastor, teacher, he, he was like, well, why not just do one church with 60 people in it? You know, what, what happened really was this question. He's like, was it a doctrinal issue or, or was it a personality difference? And she said, oh, no, it was doctrinal. The other group believed in having fellowship dinners. That is, that is not something to split over. <laughs> we need to avoid disputes. We, and... and one of those kinds of disputes would be going back to what Paul said in Titus uh, 3.9, or genealogies. Genealogies were important in the Jewish tradition and history. There's a number of them in the Bible. The first one beginning in Genesis 9, 10, and 11, where it takes you from Noah all the way through to Abraham. And the first nine chapters, nine chapters of First Chronicles, basically one long genealogy. Very exciting reading um, for us today. Back then it would have been, actually, but um, even Matthew and Luke begin their Gospels with different genealogies for Jesus, uh, coming from the line of David as well as the line from Adam. Now, Jewish people, they took their genealogy seriously because it really shows the history of their people. Like, you go through and you see the names and you know the names. You know the things, that, the stories that were associated with them. And so these people who were teaching things against the true gospel, what they would do is they would come in and they would use their own genealogies to kind of back up their claim, saying, oh, we are from the line of Abraham. Um, but it, it also wouldn't have just been them. It would have also been the locals who may have you know, been overly focused on their own history, on their own ancestry. But as Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4, he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. 
See, we live by faith in God. And while our history is, is of some importance, it's not near as important as our new identity that we have in Christ. And so, Paul says, avoid genealogy disputes. And next, he says, avoid arguments. When I was in school, I learned a little bit about the Illinois senatorial debates between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas. I always heard that they were, they were really well done and, and just... Um, really interesting things. But one thing that I was interested in was the format for the debates, like how they actually put these debates together. And what would happen is the first person would open with an hour-long address, which seems like forever, and then the second person would follow up with an hour-long opening address for himself. So they, they would come prepared with their own opening addresses for an hour, but then they would each have a half an hour to have a rebuttal. And that would be it. So it would be a three-hour process, three-hour thing, but it would really just be two blocks for each person. Well, of course that got me interested in how we did our debates in 2020, how we did the presidential debates. And here's what it was, at least for the first one. It was six 15-minute segments, which was 90 minutes, where the moderators would ask questions on certain topics, then the candidates would have two minutes to respond to the question, and then they would get a chance to respond to each other. So I went back and watched about 15 seconds and immediately found a clip where they were just arguing with and over top of each other. And 15 seconds was all I could handle of it. I was just like, nope, this is over. I don't need to watch this. It's pretty amazing, though, how those two debates you know, compare to each other. They're very different um, in the format and everything, but even how they treat each other, I think. But it highlights how we've tended to move over however much time, move argument to argument as the primary way of debating somebody with whom we disagree. Like, we just want to argue. But Paul cautions Titus to avoid arguments. Arguments stem from rivalry and discord. Paul uses the same word to chastise the people of Corinth as he told them in 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. He says, you're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? The word that he uses here um, for quarreling, it's the same word that Paul uses for arguing in Titus. He calls them worldly. He says they're still immature in their faith, really, because of all of these arguments between each other. And we're not meant to argue with each other, especially as a body of believers. We're not really meant to argue especially in ways that are divisive. And if we do, then that shows us something about our faith. It shows us that we're still a little bit immature. Mature believers, we can disagree with each other, but we don't want it to be to the point of division. We have conversations. We don't have arguments. We don't attack each other. We love one another, because that's what Christ has commanded us to do. And we're not going to agree with everything, but we still have unity as the body of Christ. Now, the last thing in this list that Paul deals with is avoiding quarrels about the law, specifically. The Jewish law, of course, is very important to their people throughout the history, throughout their history. Over time, though, and what I would say originally was done with good intention, the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, they started to add some rules on top of the law, the rules that would help the people not even come close to breaking the law. Over time, though, these extra rules started to get treated as the law themselves, or at least of equal weight with the law. 
And during Jesus' Jesus's ministry, he railed against the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, because of the burdens that they were putting on their people. Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. And he did that in his sacrifice for our sins. And so now his people experience freedom from the law. The problem comes with these teachers who were following Paul after he planted the churches. Many of them were Jewish Christians who were going to the Gentile people that Paul was preaching to, and they were adding things on top of the grace of God, on top of the gospel message that Paul was preaching, like, like the men needed to be circumcised before they could truly be Christians. And they were also using their resume, for lack of a better word, to show that they could be trusted and that Paul wasn't as good a teacher as they might have thought. And Paul didn't take that lying down. That's why we have some of the letters that we have in the New Testament. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul gives his own resume to compare. He says in Philippians 3, verses 2 through 9, he says, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's a pretty good resume. But he continues, he says, whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The quarrels about the law, or any quarrels really, they're just seeking to sow dissension. And we've got to avoid that to be sure. If proving ourselves right over everything is our goal, then we need to rethink things. We need not be divisive. Because really that's what all of these things that Paul is talking about is trying to avoid the controversies, the genealogies, the arguments, the quarrels about the law. He says that they're all unprofitable and useless, and they just seek to divide the people of God. In summer of uh, 2021, um, our family went to Tennessee, and we met up with my brother's family for a vacation down in the Gatlinburg area. And One of the days, we decided to go whitewater rafting, which was really fun. I'd never been before. It was such a good time. But we had this guide with us because we weren't going to be able to do it on our own. Um, we had a guide with us, and one of the things he told us was that we needed to make sure that we all worked together. And he, he would call out when and for how long we should paddle, and then we would all need to paddle at the same time. And he knew where the rocks were that we couldn't see, and we had to work together to kind of traverse those areas. And there was no room for dissension in that. Otherwise, we would hit some rocks and would probably sink. Or at least that's how he framed it to us. That's what he said. So I believe him because, you know, he worked there. So surely he knew what he was talking about. Um, 
we yeah yelled at too because there's one point that we didn't uh, all paddle because it's it's loud right you've got you got the the river dad told me what it was and I cannot remember dag nabbit what are they the rapids. that's it rapids thank you <laughs> I couldn't remember first service either I said falls <laughs> and I was like I know it's not that but um, yeah rapids thank you I'm glad you guys got that. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, so, like, we, we didn't do it through one of the rapids, and I can't remember all who it was, but I know I didn't, and I, maybe Dad didn't either, because, you know, he can't hear anyway, um, sometimes, but, uh, and we got yelled at, like, afterwards. He's like, look, if I say paddle, you paddle for how long I tell you to paddle, and I was, yes, sir, <laughs> of course. And then we did after that, and we were great. It was, it was great. We came back alive, obviously. <laughs> um, we may have lost a kid. I don't know. But that would have been all right. Um, this is how we should be as Christians, though. Like, we need to be working together. We don't have room for dissension because we'll get off track. We'll hit a rock. In the next verse of the letter, Paul teaches Titus, though, what to do when you do have divisive people because it happens, right? Like, we're human We're going to have people that come in and try and divide it. Here's what he says in Titus 3, verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. When you have a divisive person in the church, the first thing we do not do is immediately shun them. That's, That's not the right way to go. What we want to do is we want to have a conversation with them. And it's never fun to have difficult conversations. I try to avoid those like the plague. But sometimes it's necessary. Jesus taught about having difficult conversations with a brother or sister who's sinning. In Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You see, the goal of these conversations that you have is not just to get to the the end part, but it's always to seek restoration. Paul Paul says, warn somebody and then warn them again. Your hope should be that they would see where they're being divisive, And then they would repent of that and rejoin the unity of the congregation. But if if they don't, then there is drastic action that should take place. Paul says, if you warn them twice, you should have nothing to do with them. And that's similar to what Jesus said when he said that if the sinner refuses to listen to you, you should treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Just treat them as if they don't even belong to your church. Neither one of these are what we should be aiming for. What we're hoping for is that these people would see where they're sinning and repent, but if, if they're obstinate, if they won't repent of it, then, like Paul says, you can be sure that they're warped and sinful and self-condemned. It takes pressure off of you, for one. And there's not really a whole lot that you can do for them, but you can pray for them. Just as you would for somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Our goal should be unity, though. 
Jesus prayed for unity in his followers as he was preparing to go to the cross in John 17. The same unity that he and the Father and the Spirit have. A unity based in love. Our church, it's, it's part of what's called the Restoration Movement. started in the early to mid-1800s. And there's a quote that's been said for a long time in this movement. It's this, it's, In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. In all things, love. In the essentials, in, in the doctrine, in the, the important things, we have unity. But we don't always agree on things, and so where there are opinions, where there are, are you know, it, it's not doctrine, it's, it's not like in our statement of faith, we can have liberty in that. But in all things, in how we treat people, how we, how we um, talk with people, love. As Paul's wrapping up this letter, he has some final instructions for Titus, verse 12. He says, as soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. And then he follows this up with one final appeal in verse 14. He says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what's good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. This is one final imperative that Paul gives Titus in this letter. There's, I think, 14 or so in the letter, 14 imperatives. And the last one is this, the people must learn. It's something that doesn't stop, like it's an active verb. You've got to learn, continually learn. Christians should always be learning. We don't stop learning. The word for this verb is derived it's from the same word that disciple comes from. Disciples are learners. We learn about who our God is, but we don't stop there either. We can't just stop at love. We're a teaching church. We love to teach here. We love to learn. Hopefully you love to learn. But we can't just stop at learning. Like, we've got to apply it. We've got to take these things that we're learning and put them into action in our lives. Samuel Nagawa, who's a commentator on his, uh, in his book on Titus, he said, sound doctrine involves living out the truth in everyday life. Now, when Paul's talking about learning here, he's saying something specific. He says the people are to learn to devote themselves to doing what's good. It's really the same thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul said that they should be ready to do whatever is good being prepared to do good works. But remember, this is not in our own power. Because if we do good works out of our own power, then quite honestly, what, what do we need God for? We're doing this out of God's power, out of, out of the gospel message, the gospel power that's changed our lives. Like Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, May God equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Christ, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God will equip you with what you need to do the good works, to be able to give our devotion to them. And what are these? Well, he writes here, it is to provide for urgent needs. 
we take care of each other and those who are less fortunate than us. It's always so encouraging that when something happens within our church body that, that we can be there to help the needs, that we are there to help the needs. We have a benevolence line item in our budget for this reason. And uh, when we have our congregational meeting on December 11th, you, you'll see that uh, we budgeted $6,000 this year for benevolence. We spent 12000 which is a little over budget, and that's okay. Because we also have like a fund that we keep for benevolence. And I think we've tried to keep spending out of that, and it keeps getting replenished. And that's because of you. Because you keep giving to it, which is amazing. So thank you. But it's not just monetarily. Not just with money that we help out. Like we have folks who will give their time and their effort and their labor their expertise, and more to those who are in need. I know when we've had families, just for one example, we've had families who've had somebody pass away or get injured or something like that, and we'll help with meal trains. You know, the ladies of this church who, you know, if you were here last Sunday evening, you know that people cook well in this church. And, you know, we've done meals for for those kinds of people. We've done meals for people who, you know, most of the people don't even know, and we'll still do meals for them. We collect food for the needs at Pantry 279. We've helped people, or we've, we've got people who are skilled in trades. We've gone and helped others with plumbing and electricity and things that I don't know anything about. And honestly, if you're in need or ever in need or know somebody who's in need, then you let us know. We want to help. So you can call or email the church office, talk to one of the elders, Literally just find anybody in this church, and we'll point you to somebody, because life's too hard to try and do this on your own. And we do this because we are a community. We're more than that. We're family. We are sons and daughters of God Most High, brothers and sisters in Christ. So we try our best to love one another just like Jesus commanded us to. And so we take care of each other. And we try and help those outside of these walls as well to show them that same love of Christ that should be overflowing from us because of how much he shows us, how much he loves us. Paul says there's another reason that we do this, and it's so that we don't live unproductive lives. Literally, that means that we bear no fruit. Jesus talked about bearing fruit when he was speaking to the disciples before his arrest in John 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. One of the first lessons I ever taught in youth group, which would have been nine years ago now, I think, which seems like a long time, Um, but it was on this passage in John 15. And it was, a, it was something that I had found, so it told me to get a potted vine plant as an illustration. So I did, 
And I took that plant and, and I ripped off one of the branches of the vine, or off the vine. And apart from the vine, the, the branch wasn't going to be able to, to sustain itself. It would die. But the neat thing about it was, is that branch could be grafted back onto the vine. And it would actually start to get nutrients back. It would start to grow and produce fruit in the future. When we remain connected to the source of power, to Christ, then we're going to bear fruit in our Christian walk. We will live productive lives, not because of our own strength, not because of our own power or fortitude, but because of Christ's strength, power, fortitude through us. When we bear fruit for him, that's really how we show that we're his disciples. Now, Paul concludes this letter by writing in verse 15. He says, everyone with me sends greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And that ends the letter from the Apostle Paul to the young pastor named Titus. Who would have thought we would have talked for 12 weeks on this tiny little three-chapter letter? But that's the beautiful thing about Scripture. It is inexhaustible. There's a lot that we need to continue to think about even after today. As we're preparing for the future at Maple Grove, we need to take some of these lessons that we've learned and we need to put them into practice. Not just from today, but over these whole 12 weeks. Because we want to be fruitful for the kingdom for years to come. I mean, this church has been around since early 1800s, mid-1800s. I don't know the exact date. Tom probably does. You can ask him. Um, Pre-Civil War, I know that, which is wild to me. (laughs) Um, I want to be here for that much longer after today, but we've got to, we've got to live it out. We've got to do these things, and of course, we're only going to be fruitful if we remain grafted onto the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do this because of what he's done for us, dying on a cross so that we might live. So as we close this series, and right now as we prepare to come around the table for communion, we remember why we do any of this. It's for the sake of our loving Savior, Jesus. It's for his glory and not our own. So with that, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this letter that you have seen fit to preserve for 2,000 years so that we can still learn and, and apply it to our lives, just like the people of Crete would have done back then. We thank you for Paul and his ministry and Titus as well. We thank you for the things that we've learned over the last 12 weeks and going ranging from things like how we appoint leaders or what kind of characteristics we need to look for in our leaders to things like today where it's how do we deal with people who are divisive. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to live the things that we've learned over these last 12 weeks. Help us live them out. Don't let us just leave it here. Help us to apply it to our lives. 
And we do this because of your son, Lord. We do this because of his amazing grace that he came and died for us out of love, a great, great love that we can't even comprehend. We take this time in our service now, Lord, to remember the sacrifice that he made as he told us to so many years ago to remember these things. We take the bread as remembering his body that was broken, the juice for the blood that was spilled. But we also remember that he didn't stay there. He died, but he came back, conquered death. We thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.